want to start off by reminding you, it's about the 20th anniversary of way back in July of 2002. Uh, there were uh, miners in Pennsylvania um, doing their work when 72 million gallons of water flooded the shaft of the Q Creek mine, trapping uh, nine Pennsylvania coal miners 240 feet underground. Now, the danger wasn't the water. The water was preventing them from being able to access going up to the surface. But the danger was, because they were trapped, separated from the surface by the water, that they were starting to have limited air to breathe. They were starting to breathe their own carbon dioxide. And so uh, as people discovered what had happened, they lowered a six-inch air pipe into that chamber. They had to drill through and, and uh, send this air pipe in, first of all, to relieve some of the pressure, to give them some fresh air, and they would signal that they were alive by banging with a, a wrench on that pipe so that people knew that, that they were okay. And, that, and they banged nine times to let them know that all nine miners were still alive. But then, at some point, they fell silent. But then hope grew again as rescuers were able to take a drill and drill through about 20 stories of massive granite with a huge diamond-tipped bit. And so things were starting to look up and turn around. They had hoped that there would be great rescue. But hope began to fade again when that same drill bit broke only a third of the way through the, the hard granite. And in fact, when it broke, it shattered into pieces, clogging up the hole, the very hole that they were trying to drill through. So the rescue efforts had to stop for about 18 hours. During that 18 hours, having to remove the shattered pieces, when everything had fallen silent in that mine shaft, and in not only unclogging all the broken pieces, but having to install a new drill bit. And they weren't sure what would, if there would be enough oxygen, enough air for the people to survive. You see, this unforeseen setback seemed like an incredibly tragic turn of events. And amongst all the people who had gathered, both rescuers, media, even the governor of the state of Pennsylvania, the little hope they had, it started to evaporate. And I propose to you that in our lives, in the hurts and losses that we experience in our lives, sometimes we're going to start, start to see maybe some light at the end of the tunnel after you've been hurt by something or you've suffered through something. But few things will make us feel as helpless and as hopeless as when you're trying to pick yourself back up that suddenly you have another big setback, perhaps to your health or to your heart, to whatever your situation is. And it feels like that you're being kicked while you're still down. And you may wonder, how in the world can I possibly recover from this? And where is God in all this? I think we might find some answers this morning if you turn in your Bible to Ruth chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4. If you don't have one, uh, there are some under every other seat, I believe. If not, we're also going to put the scriptures up on the big screen, so don't worry about it. But we're in this series. This is the final message in this short series called Redeemed, uh, where we're discovering that God's providence, that means God's invisible work behind the scenes, that he's working constantly to bring his redemptive plan into life's pain. That even when there are moments where our, the suffering in our lives, that suffering is so great, but we have a Savior who is so much greater, who is working out, going to work out everything in the end for our redemptive good. And not just for 
important people and kings and, and, and super religious people, but we see in the book of Ruth in the everyday details of normal people's lives as we learn to love, trust, and follow God. And so to give you some background, what's happening here in the book of Ruth is this is a time that is concurrently happening in the book of Judges, uh, which is the book of the Bible right before it. It's a time of faithlessness and famine. And what we're going to see here is not a, a, uh, the view from a king's eye view or from a national view, but from the perspective and pain of two very average people, Naomi, whose husband and son have died, and her daughter-in-law, this childless Moabite woman named Ruth. And the struggles that they've been wrestling through in this entire time is they have no food, they have no other family, they have no future. But God has shown up in Israel through the invisible hand of providence to reverse the famine that the people are experiencing. And so by faith, they go back to God, to his people, to his blessing, and they find favor in the field of a man named Boaz, who turns out, He's an eligible bachelor, number one, and he's also what's called a kinsman redeemer uh, to uh, Naomi's husband's, dead husband's family. Uh, what that means is in Leviticus chapter 25 and in Deuteronomy 25, uh, what would happen in their society is when you fell to the bottom, when you were financially destitute, uh, you could have a male kinsman from your family can come and be your deliverer. He could deliver you from slavery or poverty by paying a legal redemption price to set you free or to buy back your life or to buy back your property or to marry you if you were a, a, a widow or a single woman to continue your family line. And so what's happening at this point in the story is that the wheels are turning in Naomi's head. The providence of God has provided them food at this point. Is he also possibly providing them family through Boaz? And so this smart mother-in-law, she concocts this incredibly bold plan, sends Ruth out in the middle of the night, uh, and, and not to be inappropriate in, in this you know, ancient Near East culture, but Ruth comes to Boaz in the middle of the night, and I'm not trying to ask you to marry me because that's not appropriate for our Middle Eastern culture, but I propose that you propose to me. And Boaz is kind of like, okay. And so he takes it in, and it, this seems like the story is headed for a fairy tale ending when suddenly this overturned vehicle is blocking the road. There is another relative, another redeemer, who's next in line ahead of Boaz, this man that we haven't met yet, that we're going to meet in today's story. And so the question is, where is the providence of God when a setback brings us to a dead end on the road to redemption? Ruth chapter 4, verse 1. Now Boaz had gone up to the, to the gate and sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And then he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here. So they sat down too. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you, uh, I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And the man, he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field uh, from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead, in his inheritance. 
Then the Redeemer said, uh, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. So you take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, this was the custom in uh, former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one would uh, drew off his sandal, gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. <laughs> what in the world's happening here? So uh, verse 1 and 2, Boaz, our guy, who has been feeding Ruth and Naomi in his field, this wealthy businessman, um, out of, not out of manipulation, but out of the kindness of his heart, out of the movement of God in his character. He's been hanging around the city gate. Why is he doing that? Because in Hebrew culture back then, that's where public business transactions take place. And by the providence of God, the man who's in the first position to redeem Elimelech's family and property, he just kind of moseys on by. What do we call that? Is that coincidence? No, it's providence. And so Boaz, he pulls him on the side, hey, you have a minute, cuz? And uh, he invites the ten, 10 elders of the city to join in this discussion uh, because they will serve as legal witnesses uh, to notarize any business deal that Boaz does. And so he goes to this man who's in the first position. He's in the second position, right? It's kind of like real estate, trying to buy a house. Like when you're in first position, you get first dibs. You're the one that gets to, gets to make the offer first. And so in verse 3, he says to this man, hey, you know our distant relative Naomi? Uh, her husband Elimelech moved their family to Moab during the famine. But he made that decision apart from God, based on practical needs without considering the spiritual implications. And so you guys know that he and his son, uh, they, all his sons, they all died. They mortgaged their future. They destroyed their life and destroyed their family. And so Naomi has come back, but now as a widow, as a very poor woman. And so she needs to sell the land that belonged to her husband, our relative. And then it says in verse 4, I want you to catch this little note. I thought I would tell you because this man, this relative who was in first position, he had no clue. He has taken no action so far even though he is the first in line as the family redeemer. He has first dibs to buy back this property and to keep it in their clan. You see, back then, uh, selling property is not like what we do today. You know, especially in California, if a lot of people move around. You buy your house, you sell your house, you move to a new place. But back then, the average Hebrew Jewish person was a blue-collar farmer. And so in the history of Israel, when God gave the Israelites the promised land, he also gave to each family a property as a lasting inheritance. Some of you have read through that really boring section where it sounds like the family of such and such received this part of the land, the family of such and such received that part of the land. But it's meant to be a lasting inheritance for your entire lineage. So from your sons to your grandsons and et cetera, et cetera, to keep that land, to cultivate that land, to feed your family, to generate an income. And you would pass it down from generation to generation to generation. So it's not something that you just sell easily. And so he asked this man, dude, will you redeem it and keep it within our clan? And if not, then I'll do it. Now this man, he's mulling over this idea practically without considering it prayerfully. He's thinking about, well, this sounds like a really good investment. I'm just going to pay pennies on the dollar. And then uh, I just have to take care of this elderly widow from my family, Naomi. But you know what? She's too old now. She's not going to get married. We don't need to have her married off to someone. Uh, she's not going to have any more kids. Uh, all of her kids were adults and already died. Uh, that means that she, I don't have to give her any inheritance. There is no downside to this for me. I'll take it. Now, this is a major setback. We're talking about setbacks today. Setbacks when you think that things were looking on the up and up for Naomi and Ruth, and suddenly 
here's a major setback. This dude that they do not know who's only thinking about with the little dollar signs in his eyes. And I want you to imagine if the story ended here. For these two women, they'd be treated as an investment of the future, not the intimacy of family. I want you to picture for them, their life is flashing forward before their eyes. We're going to be two women who this guy's going to stick in like this one-bedroom apartment, like in the back corner of the property with 50 cats maybe, and, then, uh, and we're going to live unhappily ever after, resigned to a mediocre existence. And tragically, that's what frequently happens when we experience roadblocks on the road to redemption because we're not prayerful and proactive within the providence of God. But fortunately for these two women, Boaz is. This man is both those things. In chapter 3, he deals, he trusts God, and he deals with this situation prayerfully and patiently with integrity. And here he also deals with it wisely, with a plan that by faith, he's ready to play his last card. Did you see this? Verse 5. Oh, okay, you're going to take the land. By the way, also, you need to redeem this woman, Ruth, which means that you're going to probably have to marry her. And she's great. She's also, as you notice in the text, this is the first time in a while that she's been called this. She's also a Moabite, the Moabitess Ruth. And if you know anything about that culture back then for the Jewish people, that was a big no-no. This is an outsider from a group of people of idolatry, sexual immorality, and hostility towards Jewish people. And on top of that, she's a young widow, and she's poor. That means she has nothing. You're going to have to marry her. That means that you're going to have to have kids with her who by the way, will keep their dad's name and then also keep their dad's property when they turn 18. So you're going to pay for this property and then you're going to lose it when the kids turn 18. So if that sounds like a good deal, why don't you sign here? And then we see in verses 6 through 8, this man's kind of like, let me think, hold on, hold on, let's not pressure me here. Let me think twice about this. I'm already married. I have kids of my own. I don't want, not only will I lose the property, I'm paying for this property and then I lose it, but uh, if I have kids with this woman, Ruth, which will probably require it of me, then that might threaten the, the inheritance of the kids that I already have too. So how about you do it? <laughs> you go ahead and do it. And so he, what he does is he removes his sandal, which sounds really weird, and he trades it with Boaz. And there's this kind of weird cultural thing that's happening, but I don't want you to worry too much about it. It's the traditional equivalent of a business handshake, but it's also legally binding. Now, here's my question for you. How did this situation and setback get turned around? And the big idea for this morning's text is that it gets turned around because Boaz knows that God's providence, the invisible hand of God, works alongside our faithfulness, which means that we take action to bring about his redemption, even in the face of setbacks. And I know for some of you maybe who are very church-going or very religious and spiritual, like, that doesn't sound very spiritual to me, but it's very biblical that there's both God's sovereignty and our human responsibility in the sense that Boaz demonstrates faith that both faithfully trusts God's providence and plan, but also faithfully acts on it. He doesn't just sit back. He acts on it with wisdom, with integrity, with courage. I was reading this study that talked about how 39% of shoppers in the United States will purchase in the, a store gift card for their friends and family as a gift. And on top of that, uh, if not a, a, a gift card from a store, 33% of shoppers will opt to buy a restaurant gift card for people. But according to the Journal, State of, uh, the Journal of State Taxation, I know that's fascinating reading, right? The, the typical American home has the average about $300 worth of unused, unredeemed gift certificates in their home, often because 
we misplace it, you, know, you stick it in some drawer or some envelope, you accidentally throw it out, or you only partially use it and you forget to use the rest. And so, according to this study, from 2005 to 2011, $41 billion of gift cards went unused in the United States. $41 billion. And I think about that because how often when you and I experience setbacks in our recovery from maybe hurts and losses in life, God wants to present an opportunity to you to redeem that situation. It's like a gift card to repay a debt, to repent of sin, to repair a relationship, to release your anger, to receive a blessing. But how often do we let that pass by unredeemed because our eyes are too focused on the setback instead of being focused on the Savior. So I want you to consider this morning the three men that I mentioned. Which one are you like? Are you like that first redeemer who goes unnamed? He's not even that important enough that they name him in the Bible. Are you like Elimelech, the husband of Naomi? Or are you like Boaz? And what I mean by that is, are you passive when there is an opportunity from God? Or perhaps you are, are you aggressive and acting apart from God, like Elimelech? Or are you patiently waiting for God to act providentially and then responding proactively? There's God's opportunity in his providence, but it also requires our proactivity, our action. Now, you should be thinking about, well, you know, <laughs> Boaz is a clever guy, and this first dude doesn't seem that smart. He seems like kind of easily manipulated. Like, by, like, Boaz was really smart. He came in with a plan. Here's all the great things that you can inherit. Oh, by the way, here's this other thing that you probably don't want. But what if your setback isn't just a short-term obstacle that you can dodge like that man, but instead perhaps the setbacks you experience are much greater problems, long-term problems, chronic conditions in your life. Verse 9, Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, You are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of uh, Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and, and to Malin. For those of you who are who haven't been with us. Those are the two sons that died of Elimelech. And, um, and also Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of Malin, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. By the way, that's not a slavery practice for those of you who are like kind of concerned, like, whoa, um, that's just part of the price that you pay for um, the redemption of a woman. Okay, so uh, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from amongst his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman, they're talking about Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this woman. And so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. What's happening here? Verses 9 and 10, Boaz seals the deal. He pays the redemption price to buy back all that's been lost, all the land that belonged to Elimelech, that belonged to his sons, Malan and Kilian, and pays the price even to marry this widow, Ruth. He pays an incredibly steep price, so it's not just one little thing. He's buying it all back, and it's not just paying a steep price for love or for his personal gain, 
But it says, if you read it in that verse, to perpetuate the name of the dead in their inheritance, that their name may not be cut off, that it might not come to an end, that it might not be forgotten amongst the people and amongst this land. In other words, he is redeeming not just Ruth, but also Elimelech's whole family and legacy. Because yes, this is a love story, but it's not just of romance, it's of redemption, of saving and rescuing people and their future at great personal cost, because that's what redeemers do. But there's an even greater setback in this passage that you kind of have to read between the lines a little bit, but it answers this question. You know, if you're going to have this great land, the whole purpose is, remember what I told you about their culture, is family legacy, something that's passed down from generation to generation. That means you need kids to inherit the land, to work the land, to live in the land, to own the land. And some of you remember all the way back in Ruth chapter 1 that this young woman, Ruth, uh, she married Naomi's son, and they were married for 10 years before this man died. But in all that time, they tried to have children, and she was barren. That means that she wasn't able to have kids. For over 10 years, they tried. That means that at this point in her life, even though she's younger than Boaz, the best days of her childbearing and the hope for that are behind her. I think some of you know that pain. It's not something that you can fix by Boaz being clever enough or capable enough. So in verse 11, the elders of the city, the ones who are bearing witness to this business transaction, they pray a blessing on her. May God give Ruth fertility and a legacy, the same way that he did way back in the, earlier in the Old Testament with Rachel and Leah, who gave to Jacob, one of the forefathers of Israel, gave Rachel and Leah 12 sons who blew up into the 12 tribes of Israel. So they're, he's, they're praying a tremendous blessing on this woman who's been barren, who has been unable to have children in all the time that she was married over a decade, that you would have such great children that you would be renowned in our little town of Bethlehem. Remember where they're living in. That town of Bethlehem, you may know it. Now, in verse 12, they also say this weird blessing that I, I need to explain to you a little, little bit. May you be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. And some of you are like, hmm, no, you're not. You don't know what that's like. So way back in Genesis chapter 38, that's at the beginnings of the, of the story of Israel. We have Father Abraham and his son Jacob, and then you have those 12 uh, uh, sons, and there's a scandalous story of one of Jacob's sons named Judah. And this man, Judah, uh, he had sons, uh, and his oldest son married a, a girl named Tamar. That was his daughter-in-law. And like Ruth, she's childless, and she's a foreign woman. That means she came from a culture that didn't worship God, um, and so was often looked down upon in, a very, in what I would consider kind of a racist way by the, by the Israelites. Now, what happens to her is that her husband, his son, died. And she's left without an heir, without an inheritance. Sound familiar? Several generations later, like Ruth. But unlike Boaz, Judah and his family fail her as a kinsman redeemer. They don't do anything for her. She's left without any kids. And so she has to do something which I would consider horrific, but also understandable. She disguises herself as a prostitute, tricks her father-in-law Judah, sleeps with him, and amidst all this sin and anguish and suffering and shame, you know what? God is merciful. God gives her twins. And the first one born is Perez, the man that's mentioned here. And what happens is that by the time of, of this story where we're at, per, the house of Perez has become the preeminent line in the tribe of Judah 
that man who we're talking about in Boaz's time. And so I want you to, to understand what is being prayed upon this woman. If God can take the suffering, the shame, the setbacks of Tamar and redeem all of it, what do you think that he can do with Ruth? That's their point that they're praying for. And I know a lot of times we pray these pie-in-the-sky kind of things, and, but we really don't think anything good will come of it. But this passage shows that, that whatever your status, like Tamar or Ruth, whatever your suffering, whatever your sorrow, whatever your shame, even if it's at the hands of other people that you cannot control, that God can redeem your situation so that your comeback can be greater than your setback. And I want you to think about it this way. Some of you know our good friend and sister, Lori Campbell. Uh, she has... Uh, a sister named Tracy, who uh, actually contracted COVID uh, this past year and so had to struggle incredibly with her health. But she was on the road to recovery when she encountered a major setback. Her heart stopped. They had to put her on a ventilator. And in fact, she ended up going in and out of consciousness for quite some time. But she wasn't responding to the treatments and her body was starting to fail her. And so at some point, Uh, The doctors told her family, you know, uh, on day 14, you're going to need to make a choice with this unconscious woman, whether you want to give her a tracheotomy, because you can't be on a ventilator for more than 14 days, or if you want to take her off life support. And Tracy's children made the agonizing, I would hate for any of you to be put in this position, but they made the agonizing choice for the latter, to take her off life support. And in this picture that you see on the, pic, uh, on the big screen that um, Sister Lori allowed me to share, uh, this is her husband saying goodbye to her, his wife, to, to Tracy. And so Lori and her daughter Jessica and their family, they drove all the way up to Reno just this past Wednesday night. And the way she said it to us is to say goodbye for the last time. Now, while she's driving, the growth group that she's a part of on Wednesday nights Uh, We were all hanging out together at my house, and we were praying together for Tracy, for Lori, for their family, but praying for Tracy, asking God, begging him for his mercy and his redemption for Tracy, whether in this life or in the life to come. Now, on the next day, they took Tracy off of life support. And the way that Lori describes it to me, they were literally planning for her funeral. And then she woke up. And everyone in their family and in their room was sobbing and freaking out in disbelief. Even the nurse that was with them that day declared, this woman has come back from the dead. And since then, they've moved her from the ICU, the intensive care unit, to a regular room in the cardiac unit. And remember, Lori texting our growth group that, that day, I am so shook, I can't believe that you prayed my sister back to life. I want to encourage you, don't just keep your eyes on the size of your setback. Turn your eyes to the God of the comeback, because we believe in a God that it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, who works all things, both the good circumstances and the pains of life, all things for the good of those who love God. Now, what that doesn't mean is, it doesn't mean that all of our circumstances are good, but it means that God is. And that he is the one who can take our terrible situation and turn it from ashes in our mouths into something good, something beautiful. That God engineers comebacks in the lives of people who have no reason to believe things will get any better. But our God is greater than the circumstances. 
Now, you should be sitting here right now and saying, okay, I believe that that happened. God is great. Yes, but that kind of thing doesn't happen to me. God doesn't redeem my setbacks like that. I have long-term depression, long-term illness. Someone in my, a loved one passed away, and they're still in the ground. And I want to challenge you, what if there is a much bigger picture that we do not see yet? Verse 14. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you, who's more to you than seven sons. In other words, she's, more, she's a better daughter-in-law than all the sons that she could possibly have had, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi, the grandma. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nash, <laughs> Nashon, Nashon fathered, I'm terrible with these names. I want to say Salmon, but I think in Hebrew it's actually Salmon. Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. What a weird way to end this book. So in verse 14, the scene shifts from Boaz and his proceedings and all these victorious things and the blessing that these people are praying on him. It shifts to Naomi as a grandmother. And she's surrounded by these women, you might remember from earlier chapters, who are kind of like a small group from a church small group around her. And they're praying over her. Praise be to God who doesn't leave you or forsake you without a redeemer. And may he make this redeemer's name great. And I want you to think about, first of all, who's, who are they talking about here? Who is this redeemer? And I want to tell you, it's not Boaz. You see in verse 15, they say, May this Redeemer be to you, Naomi, a restorer of your soul, a nourisher in your old age, uh, because of your incredible daughter-in-law who has given birth to him, it says. That's not Boaz. Boaz didn't come out of <laughs> We're talking about the baby. And what I want you to see in this passage, it's not just Boaz who's redeeming this family's pain and loss, that this baby will too. He's also a Redeemer. And that this passage is looking ahead that this man, this baby will be the one who takes care of Naomi in her, her old age, who will carry on the family lineage and legacy. That in verse 16 and 17, this, this sister's fellowship, they declare that it's not a, just a son to Ruth and Boaz, but to Naomi in the sense that all that she has lost, God has restored. All that she has suffered, God has re redeemed. And the twist in the end of this story is that for, for those who are of a Jewish audience who will read this book later, is that they name this baby Obed, who will become the father of Jesse, who will be the father of David, the greatest king in the history of Israel, in a time of the book of Judges when there was no king and they had no one to, to lead them, that the greatest king in the history of Israel who leads them back to loving God, worshiping God, and into the blessing of God. And then in verses 18 through 22, this book this dramatic story ends with a genealogy. That's weird. It's kind of boring. It's like reading a phone book. <laughs> Except that this reveals that the redemption of Naomi is far greater than any of us could have possibly imagined. 
that starting from Perez, God redeemed the sin-suffering shame of Tamar and the whole line of Judah, to Boaz, who redeems Ruth, to Obed, who will redeem Naomi, to King David, who will redeem a nation. These are links in a chain unveiling the invisible hand of God at work to transform the brokenness of ordinary people and pain and families and legacies for all the people of God in Israel. This is good news, and it gets better. You see, later on, long past this time, Matthew chapter 1, there's another boring list of genealogy, and it traces a lineage through another son, a better redeemer. It traces it through Boaz and Ruth are listed in that, to Obed and David, all the way to Jesus. Another son, a better redeemer. That ultimately, the poverty and pain of Ruth is transformed into the glory and goodness of Jesus. So that redemption isn't just for these people at that time, but for all people of all time by coming to faith in Jesus. That there's this bigger picture of a lineage and a legacy that shows that redemption isn't just about fixing your problems right now, but fixing them forever. That God ultimately redeems our present pain through our future fulfillment in Jesus. That because the Son of God lives sinlessly, because he died sacrificially for our sin, because he rose victoriously as our Savior, that there is coming a day at the end of history when Jesus declares in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4, that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that death shall be no more, that there will neither be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore, for the former things will pass. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. You see, when you experience a setback and God doesn't heal your brokenness, Immediately, in the way that we ask, and sometimes in the way that we hope, I want you to remember that your story is not over yet, that the ending is still being written, that we often believe in our suffering and setbacks, that God only answers prayers with, for many of you, even as believers, that God answers as yes, no, or wait. Right? That's when we ask God of something. But at the summer retreat this, this uh, past month, I was reminded by uh, Jessica Campbell that God actually always answers yes, wait, and not no, but I have something better. Something redemptive. Maybe not what you ask, and it may not be that you would fully experience it until you meet Jesus face-to-face -face in eternity, but I do have something better. Let's go back to that news article at the Q Creek Mine and I want you to see that the setback that they experienced was actually the setup for the comeback that they'll experience in rescue and redemption. You see, the governor who showed up at that time, uh, he was having a news conference with the media, and, he, and it turns out, he says, that the time that was lost in repairing the snap drill, in retrospect, his words, not mine, seemed like providential intervention. Because it turns out that 18-hour interruption allowed them enough time to pump out enough of the water from the mine shaft, ultimately to make that rescue possible. Because if they had broken through with the drill too early, the drill capsule would only be able to pull up water, not miners. That because of this setback, after three days, all of the miners were saved. And the governor says, we were nine for nine. This is nothing short of a miracle. Because setbacks in life 
often appear to us as a tragic turn of events. They appear to us like this immovable boulder that's dropped in the middle of our road. But from God's perspective, they're just stepping stones that He uses to bring us to someplace better, someplace redemptive. And I want you to remember that redemption, it doesn't just travel in a straight line leading from one blessing to the next blessing and finally to heaven at the end of the day as if you're playing a video game. No, setbacks block our paths and it's, and it's easy for us to give into doubt and despair or to give up entirely. But I want to remind you of the words of Pastor John Piper who says that life is like a winding, troubled road. There's switchback after switchback, and that the point of Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in the midst of all these strange turns. That God doesn't just show up after your trouble and then clean it up. He's plotting the course. He's accompanying us on the travels. He's managing our troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good, for His glory. And so the story of Ruth and the story of redemption is that God gave a better son, his son, to redeem our sin, suffering, sorrow, and shame so that we can trust in his providence to work out everything in the end for those who love Jesus, worship Jesus, and respond to Jesus. And so I want to encourage encourage you as we end this book, even if your setback is lifelong illness or depression, lifelong loss, irreplaceable, poverty, pain in this life. By the faith and forgiveness of Jesus, there is coming a day when he will bring joy out of sorrow, purpose out of pain, life out of death, redemption out of ruin. And so whatever you have lost, may you trust in God's providence. May you respond with your faithfulness so that you can find that the comeback is greater than the setback because we have a mighty Redeemer. Heavenly Father, as we come before you in prayer and in worship, we take a quiet moment to take stock, to take inventory. Many of us have been hurt by life. And even as we try to recover from that, we find that we experience setback after setback where the progress gets erased. One step forward, three steps backwards. Would you give us hope this morning? Would you give us confidence and assurance that you are a God who has not forgotten us, who cares about our deepest needs, who is working quietly, invisibly, powerfully behind the scenes if we will just trust you. And when the moment comes to be bold enough, to be humble enough, to take a step of faith, to allow you to give us redemptive moments both in this life and the life to come.